This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and welcome to the How to Love Lit podcast on what for many of us living in the West is a holiday week. It is this week that those in the Christian tradition celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And although we will claim no theological expertise, we thought we'd like to take a look at a very famous Christian sacred text from a literary perspective. For those outside the United States, the United States today is a nation where 65% of the population consider themselves Christian, at least in a cultural sense. This does not mean that all of those 65% maintain a practicing faith tradition, but they do celebrate traditional Christian holidays. And while this is a majority, it's not even an overwhelming majority. That means to me it's significant to note that 35% of the residents of this country this week, while hopefully enjoying the benefits of a holiday that's an opportunity to get together with family and get off work, they may or may not be familiar with the history of this very traditional Western holiday. So today, in honor of the week, and before we take up Julius Caesar next week, we thought we'd have a special holiday edition and feature a selection of Christian sacred text, Luke 2. It's the story that if you watch any old holiday movie classic, it's the one where you see the kids in the bathrobes standing on the stage surrounding a wooden box that has a baby doll in it. You gotta love a Christmas story. <laughs> Are you referring to the Charlie Brown Christmas special? I was actually referring to the one called A Christmas Story, but oh, there's lots of them out there yes. that kind of do this. <laughs> yeah, because Luke 2, the reading of Luke 2 is a main feature in Charlie Brown Christmas movie. The Luke story is taken from what Christians call the New Testament. 
As many know, Christians, Jews, and Muslims share many fundamental concepts about the monotheistic nature of God. However, Christians have a New Testament, and the New Testament is the story of Jesus Christ, which distinguishes them from the other monotheistic faiths. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, and they narrate the life of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth being where Jesus grew up. His birth is recorded in three of these Gospels, and the story we're highlighting today comes from the Gospel of Luke, which was written in about 90 A.D. It's interesting to note, because people don't think about this, that the Bible is not written by one person in chronological order. Luke is the ninth New Testament book to be written, if you look at it from from a chronological order. The other two versions of the birth story came out before this one did. Mark was the first, came out in 70 AD, and Matthew, not a whole lot earlier than Luke, had already been written by the time Luke's uh, gospel is written. So if you're interested, the first book of the New Testament was called Thessalonians, and it was written in AD 50 by St. Paul the Apostle. I think it's an interesting point to notice that Jesus did not write anything, nor there was any sacred text that was written during his lifetime. The narratives of Luke, in particular, did not exist until about 95 years after the events that they describe, and the stories they describe expand over a 60-year period. The birth of Christ, which is what we're talking about today, by the way, and if you take the word of most biblical scholars, which of course we will, the birth of Christ occurred sometime between 4 to 6 CE, or if you want to look at it this way, the birth of Christ occurred four to six years BC before the birth of Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, now I'm confused. All right. So just as we always ask with any book, we must ask who wrote this book? Who is Luke? First, let's understand who he was not. He was not a disciple. What that means is that he did not know Jesus himself, and he was not one of the disciples traveling around with Jesus, and he did not become a follower of Jesus through any connection with those early men. He actually is the only non-Jew to write a piece of sacred text in the New Testament. There is no evidence to suggest that he even went to Judea or Galilee, which is the setting of all of the stories in Luke. To figure out his connection with the narrative of Jesus Christ, you must understand that Luke was the author of two books included in the sacred canon of Christianity. The second one is called The Acts of the Apostles. And in that book, he subtly reveals his identity. Halfway through the book, he starts writing in the first person, we, indicating that he was traveling with the Apostle Paul. One of the first historians I found to discuss this was a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus defends his this authorship, and very little has been done successfully to rebut this traditional idea that the Luke who wrote this book was the one the Apostle Paul calls the physician, the beloved one. In Colossians, uh, a short epistle also included in the sacred canon. It appears that not only were Luke and Paul close friends who spent several years together working and traveling all over the Greek world, but Luke actually traveled to Rome with Paul when he was arrested and transported and ultimately killed. They were shipwrecked together on that trip, and at the end of Paul's life, Luke was still physically with him in Rome before he was ultimately killed by the Romans. So they were very, very close. So in a nutshell, what we know about Luke, he was a medical professional, an educated man, and in some sense, a historian, 
Although this book was obviously never designed to be a historical text, most interesting from a cultural perspective in understanding is to know that Luke was Greek. His book is characterized by a man of culture that is more closely associated with Western culture than other Bible writers. Maybe that's why it is from the Gospel of Luke that more Western art is taken than any of the others, but that's just speculation. Well, Luke clearly is looking at the book or at the stories and the, the events in the book they're very differently than his Hebrew friends. His interests were different. He features different things, and a lot of those things are things that a Westerner would be interested in, even I think really to this day. He gives away more information than the other writers about the home life of Jesus. He discusses meals, and he makes a lot of family connections. I find it particularly interesting that he features a lot of the women in the Bible. Even in the beginning of this story, or the book of Luke, we start with a woman, not even Mary, but Elizabeth, Jesus' aunt. He includes the story of the aged Anna right after the birth of Christ, and there are many other women in the Bible. He presents these women in very respectful terms, elevating them in equal status to the other cast of characters in the story. Now, this is interesting from a 21st century perspective, because even in our modern era, you have to remember that even on television in the 50s, this was something that wasn't radically done, and especially not if you think about jumping back thousands of years to a writer of ancient text. Yes. Luke highlights the monologues of Jesus where he talks a lot about the poor, money, and wealth in general. Um, he highlights moments when Jesus speaks directly of issues of race and class, specifically the treatment of Samaritans, specifically of the treatment of people who partake in sexual taboos like adultery. In Jesus' first public address recorded by Luke, Jesus says he comes to preach good tidings to the poor, to proclaim, to proclaim release to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records some of Jesus' final words as those words comfort a dying thief. And it is through his emphasis that we can clearly understand why a Greek physician would be interested in writing a book about Jesus of Nazareth. Luke is a rhetorician, and this book is a piece of persuasion directed at a Greek mind. What Luke has set out to do is to draw forth a picture of this man named Jesus Christ, who he is rhetorically defending. He is speaking from a Greek mind, expressing those characteristics of Jesus that make him the ideal man, a subject very interesting to Greek minds. So in a sense, his argument is, this is what an ideal man is, and this is how you get to be one, by being divine or basically not human. And in contrast, this is what the Caesars are not, and they are not ideal, and they in turn also are not divine. And he's going to set up that contrast many times. Of course, Luke is not the only one recording the birth of Christ. We already mentioned that it was written in other Gospels as well. So when we compare the stories, which we're not really going to do, but you could if you wanted to go back and read the other narratives in the other Gospels, it's interesting to note not only what he features, but what he chooses not to feature. The story of the birth of Jesus, uh, if you were to read it straight through the New Testament, is first recorded by Matthew. 
you have to flip about three quarters, by the way, if you're going to get a Bible to find the New Testament, because the New Testament isn't the first thing in the Bible. But if you get to the New Testament, the first book that you'll get to is Matthew. And Matthew sets the story up in a very different way, perhaps in a contrasting way to the one that we're going to see in Luke. Matthew depicts Jesus as a king, and at his birth, the reigning Herod trembles on his throne, and the Magi adore him, and they offer him regal gifts of myrrh and frankincense, and Luke represents a different kind of man. This is an ideal man from Luke's perspective, but it's one of the people, and one who is for the people. The book begins introducing two obscure peasants and gives the genealogy of an unwed mother. And that would be strange and and probably not well received, although I don't know that. Uh, And so by way of spoiler, uh, let's get into one of the most famous stories of Western culture. All right. So Luke, being a learned man and a physician, is going to display a distinct writing style. Um, He is going to begin his discussion using the Old Testament pattern of announcement, which is there's an angelic appearance, there's fear, there's the message, and then there's the confirming sign of God. And these things showed up in the Old Testament many times. So you're going to say this is a pattern of stories that people that were Jews would have already been familiar with? Yes, they would have been familiar with that pattern. And again, as we pointed out, Luke's speaking to Romans at this time period, or he's addressing the Roman mind and the Greek mind. So uh, he's bought, they may not have been familiar with that pattern, but of course Luke is from having read the Old Testament and he's lifting that. All right. So he's borrowing some things from the Jews, but he's introducing other elements from the Greeks. The story unfolds in three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 7, locates the birth of Jesus. It happens when Augustus was Caesar, emperor of the Roman world. Uh, It is set in Bethlehem, the city of David, where Joseph and Mary go for a census. It happens in a place where there is a manger and Jesus is born and then is wrapped in what are called swaddling clothes. The second part, verses 8 through 14, interprets his birth. Using the form of an announcement story, Luke tells of the appearance of an angel, of the fear of the shepherds, of the message they are given, of the sign which confirms it, and added to the announcement is some sort of song sung by beings from another world and proclaims peace to people with whom God is pleased. The third part, which is verses 15 through 20, describes responses made to the news of this event. The shepherds set out to find the sign, the babe lying in a manger, and they share the interpretation which they are given. The people marvel at their words. And finally, Mary is said to put all of these strange events in her heart. The shepherds then return to their work, glorifying and praising God for the event and its interpretation. Okay, so let's start looking at the first part. And it is quite strange. It takes place in a little town called Bethlehem. Now, if you look at Google Maps, which I did, uh, Bethlehem is 157 kilometers from Nazareth, a town in the north of Israel. And if you look on a modern map, it's really not that far away from the borders of Syria, Jordan, and even Lebanon. If you were driving it, it would take two hours. But, of course, they didn't have that. No. So if you were to walk it... Google Maps says that it would take an hour, well, one day and eight hours to walk it. Now, I want to point out that it's right outside of the capital, which is Jerusalem. 
It's eight kilometers from Jerusalem, and Google estimates that it would take you about an hour and 46 minutes if you were going to walk from Bethlehem to the capital city, which is obviously in the same direction, but a long way from where they were uh, where they were born or living at the time. Well, I have never walked for two days, but I'm going to guess people that hike could tell you that's a lot of walking. Walking for two days is a long way. Um, and so... I want to point out a couple of things, too, that, that start with the story. Um, I feel like Luke wants to directly, in the beginning, make a contrast to the two saviors. There's Caesar Augustus, the savior of Rome, and then there's Jesus Christ, the savior of man. And he's going to pit those two things against each other a lot in the story. Um, there was also, at this time period, something he made use of to, to build in the story, and that is what we call the cult of the emperor, so Caesar Augustus used his cult, his image, his fame, his glory as really political glue to hold the, um, the, the whole empire together. And so there's a, the context of the setting is going to be a political one. And there's like a long shadow of oppressive outside heavy handed rule. This begins with a reference to the census that was demanded by Caesar. And, and this is not a literary, literary device, but a political comment. The Roman imperial culture dominated and oppressed all peoples during the famed Pax Romana. The census was an element of imperial control to control economic resources. So the contrast of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome is deliberate. And in this case, it appears very cruel and petty to require a woman very pregnant to make this sort of walk. We're supposed to see the powerful Roman emperor who lives in luxury, living on the backs of people like Mary and Joseph, and then the shepherds who are going to receive the good news. And in a literary sense, in some ways, it seems to me extremely unusual to highlight this because this is a non-democratic age and everyone's supposed to be worshiping the emperor. But we're going to see that in many, many ways, the birth of Christ written as Luke wrote it could be taken as a scathing satirical criticism of current political leaders of the day. There's a lot of depth to that. And we could spend a lot of time discussing that. But yes, and so that's what makes Luke interesting for a literary podcast. He writes with a real literary style. And these are some of the elements that come out. So it's interesting to remember that Luke, when he is writing this account, is actually in Rome, the center of the worship of Caesar. He's observing it firsthand. Caesar at this time was Lord and Savior, and he took those titles and used them as part of the cult of personality. And the language of a Savior being born is actually Roman. So Luke's readers were aware of many saviors, and included in them were gods, physicians, kings, and emperors. And uh, not far from where Luke may have been writing was an inscription hailing Caesar Augustus as savior of the whole world. This is the exact same Augustus who is referenced by name in this account of Jesus. Every child in every Roman school would know it as Augustus who brings peace to the world, who brings the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Augustus had brought peace to the world, the Pax Augusta, and in gratitude, people celebrated his birthday. They remember the gift of peace received in and through him. Um, an inscription, one inscription reads, 
The birthday of the God has marked the beginning of the good news through him for the world. So this is the language of the Romans, and doubtless many of Luke's readers were familiar also with the remarkable work of the well-known Roman poet Virgil in the fourth Ecologue. It speaks of an age to come in which the virgin of peace would return and in which a child, the descendant of the gods, would be born With his coming, Virgil wrote that our guilt will disappear, the earth will be freed from its fear, and there will commence his rule over a world made peaceful. For many people in Luke's world, this hope defined as a savior was what salvation meant. Well, the idea of expressing one's hope for the future by the birthday of a child would have been, obviously, from what you're saying, extremely familiar to everyone reading Luke's account. And and Luke is saying there is hope for a real peace, and that peace does not originate in Rome, nor anyone born in Rome. Luke, remember, is in Rome with a dear friend who has been imprisoned by the Romans, getting ready to suffer one more incident of Roman violence. Um, The irony would be unbelievable. His book begins by saying, this is the Roman peace. The Roman peace that demands that teenagers walk for days in a pregnant state to register. And so you could see the story of Jesus as a contrast, perhaps even as a parody, uh, a mockery, even in one sense, of the inflated sense of worth of human rulers have of themselves. Luke is saying that they what they do is not positive peace at all, but a false or oppressive peace into the world. But look at what a real peace looks like. Look how it is born and look how it is lived. Well, honestly, I think it's interesting that Caesar Augustus isn't even the most oppressive character in the story because all Augustus has done is mandated a census. Macrobius was this 5th century writer, and he recorded this. He said, When Caesar Augustus heard that Herod the king had ordered boys in Syria under the age of two to be put to death and that the king's son was among those he killed, he has recorded a saying, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. <laughs> yes, and, and Herod is a tribute king that we don't, we're not going to explain how that system works, but yes, very much an underling to, uh, to Caesar. Um, and that's actually a detail that we don't read in the Luke narrative, but Matthew talks about the fact that Jesus is born. Uh, after Jesus is born, Herod, who had heard about a potential threat to the throne, demanded that all boys under the age of two be murdered, and according to this writer, including his own child in the mix. Uh, They're said to have stayed in a barn, not because of a targeted prejudice or cruelty, but because in the world everything is competitive and they are at the bottom of the pecking order. So let us interject that this is an inn. (laughs) It's not the Marriott. And as I read about them, some of them wouldn't have been much better than barns. Uh, some of them would have even described it as a cave. They were crowded and dirty. Um, and however, could they have gotten indoors? Of course, they would have. But the larger point is there's no place for two nobodies from Nazareth. And perhaps it was an act of generosity on the part of someone to extend a barn to them. The point to be made is that Mary and Joseph are an unwed couple traveling together, all the betrothed, and there's no room for them in society. And of course, we're not going to get into this part of the story, but being an outsider is also the theme of Luke 1 as well, which is the chapter obviously before this story, where we find out that Mary is an unwed mother in a town that probably has less than 200 people in it. Try to hide that secret. It's also um, known that 
Nazareth was a garrison for Roman soldiers. So do the math. And of course, we don't know what people said about her or to her. But I know what people would have said about a girl who showed up and pregnant in Memphis, Tennessee, and nobody knew who the father was. And there's a bunch of soldiers running around. Not to belabor that point, but I want to say that the theme of being an outcast has already been established in the first chapter, and it's going to continue in this chapter. And so a barn is not really an inappropriate place for two people unwed traveling together in this sort of condition. Yes, and once again, Luke is drawing an enormous contrast between the Roman emperor and the Christ. And it's a literary design. Uh, So the birth announcement will be made, not even to those in the society, but to those who are even farther out society than Mary and Joseph in the barn, shepherds completely outside of town in fields into laborers who are not even laboring during the day, but at night. The point could not be more well established that the Christ entering the world is choosing to enter the world amongst a group far outside the power and social structures of the day. And it's at this point that the story takes a remarkable turn. For although the story couldn't be more human and has been up to this point, it is not merely human, we'll cross that threshold into the divine, metaphysical, extraterrestrial, however you want to label it. We are now introduced to a different concept of God than has been conceived up to that point of human experience, or at least Greek and Roman experience, This God is not Roman, he's not a Roman ruler, he's not even a Greek God from Mount Olympus, but a God who lives outside the bubble of biological and astronomical spheres altogether. It's an overwhelming and fearfully awesome presence who interjects with an out-of-world emissaries, messengers, who basically come to say, there is something greater outside the experience you are living, and there's something greater that does not exist according to the rules of the existence you currently know. The account is brief and simple. The shepherds are given a sign that will let them know they have found the correct child, and it is, ye shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Uh, strange, but yet full of a lot of symbolism. The words are really beautiful. They're unusual, and it's strange that they're communicated musically, but... More interesting than anything else, it introduces a completely new way of thinking. Shepherds are working people. They're not just workers, but it's a dirty work, and their work isn't suitable for polite society. They spend their time with animals. And in this case, probably these were sheep that were going to be used by Hebrews to sacrifice in the temple, making themselves clean. A bit of irony. Mm-hmm. Later, Jesus would call will be called the Lamb of God. Uh, but here we have a lot of sheep, lots of symbolism, as much irony as you want to think about. Uh, and as one would expect, if you were met with non-human entities, it's introduced with a tremendous amount of fear And the first words are, don't be afraid. So here it is, our new way of thinking, brought to us not just by an outside voice, but an outside choir saying, don't be afraid. Here is a new way of thinking. And now we're on to part three. Uh, Mary and Joseph have strangely placed their newborn baby in a manger, which is a trough for animals, symbolic in every way. 
And the first to visit them are humble and nameless shepherds that they don't know who are driven there because beings from another world frightened them and gave them a message. It is with the forsaken and those left in the cold that the Christ was to come, that someone from another dimension beyond the rules that govern this world has a power to interject a new plan of peace into the world, and that is the good news. There is hope from outside the world to bring peace to our earth and goodwill to all men, no matter who they are, what they do, where they're from, or how much shame they've experienced in this world. And it is this spirit of peace and goodwill we would like to read this very, very short narrative written by a Greek about a Jewish non-married couple speaking about bringing peace not just to one community, but to all earth. So no matter your religious or literary background, may you enjoy the beautiful language of the 1600 in the 1600s English translation of this older story translated from Koine Greek, the second chapter of Luke's gospel, otherwise known as the Christmas story. Give it a read. Yes. And it came to pass in those days that there went a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into the heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Well, we hope you enjoyed this little bit of Christian history and culture. We certainly hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and we hope that no matter your faith community or cultural background, you can join the spirit of Christmas and say Merry Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Merry Christmas.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 